Welcome to episode 25 of the Imperfect Progress Podcast with Anne Guzman. This is a place where you can drop in and learn through listening to conversations that I'm having with several different experts. You'll find conversations around sports science, sports nutrition, mindset, and the behind the scenes of being a professional or elite level endurance athlete or coach. Today's topic is one that I have a lot of interest and experience with, yet I still feel like there's a lot of misinformation about it out on the internet and in the general and athletic populations, and that is creatine. I don't know if you've used it, but I've been using it for five years, and I'm a huge fan. I really wanted to get an expert on the topic who would really help listeners to understand the facts about what creatine is and how it can help just about anyone with different aspects of their health. So I invited fellow Canadian Dr. Scott Forbes onto the show, also known on Instagram as Dr. Creatine. Dr. Forbes is deeply entrenched in research around various nutritional and training interventions. And he's also worked as a personal trainer and consultant for several varsity and professional level sports teams. Dr. Forbes has his PhD in physical activity and recreation, and he's also an associate professor in the Department of Physical Education Studies at Brandon University and an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Regina. So it's safe to say that he is keeping busy. It was super important to me that Dr. Forbes started off by covering creatine 101. So what is it? How do we make it and store it in the body? After this, we moved on to cover so many interesting topics, including dosing, which can be done in several ways, safety, where we discuss long-term and high-dose studies. We also talk about the safety of creatine for pregnant women. We discuss creatine for bone health. We debunked some creatine myths around hydration, and we dug into the use of creatine in endurance sports, including cycling and running, and what the current research has shown in those areas. One super interesting topic that we dove into today is something that's apparently happening now, and that's around food manufacturers looking to add creatine to foods. So that was super interesting. And that came up while we were talking about the usefulness of creatine supplementation for vegetarians and vegans. So you definitely need to hear that. Lastly, we touch on different types of creatine supplements because there are several on the market. And the only type that you need to consider when purchasing one after this podcast today. So of course I didn't list everything, but these are some of the many important topics you'll learn about today. And I'm excited to share this episode with you. But first, let me take just 60 seconds of your time to tell you about my new podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. There's nothing more powerful than understanding why you feel great and why you feel subpar. That way you know what to change and you want to know how to change it. So to live your healthiest life, it's important to know what's happening inside your body. Inside Tracker goes beyond your annual blood work. They analyze your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to help you recognize where you're doing amazing and where you need improvements. They use a personalized system designed to help you live your most vibrant life. They want you to slow down that aging process and as a result, extend your health span. 
The system was created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. And how do they help? Well, after analyzing your blood, they provide you with a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and where needed supplementation. I had mine done and I'm really glad I did as some surprising blood work came back and I've tweaked my diet as a result. And I'm a pretty healthy person, but I wouldn't have known about these things had I not looked at these blood test results. Now, if you add InterAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age, you can see how you're aging from the inside out too. So that was super interesting for me. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store by going to insidetracker.com forward slash Guzman Nutrition. So that's G-U-Z-M-A-N and then the word nutrition. So that's insidetracker.com forward slash Guzman Nutrition and get 20% off the entire store. Now let's jump into the podcast and learn why we should all be optimizing our creatine levels in our blood today. Cheers. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Forbes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited to uh, have this conversation today because creatine is my favorite supplement and I know that it's probably likely yours too because... They don't call you Dr. Creatine for nothing, right? That's <laughs> um, true. Yeah. I'm still, uh, I still meet a lot of people who have heard about creatine, but actually don't really know or understand like what it is and how it can help them with their health and performance. And I know that, you know, when we're within the world of sports science, we might think, oh, everyone knows about creatine. But I mean, you know, there are elite level athletes out there who still aren't using it and maybe aren't really aware that, you know, it's not just for, say, a pure sprinter, and there are other benefits that that it could contribute to their performance. Um, So I think that it's still really important, especially to talk about creatine, because there's always so much new science evolving around it. And there's still a misconception, I think, that creatine is all about getting jacked at the gym and building really big muscles. But we know that it's so much more than that. So I really want to touch on all of the areas of health that creatine can um, help us with today. And myself, I know I was just telling you that I started taking creatine every day in 2018. And I had dabbled with it in the past, but I've taken it every day since November 2018 after I sustained a concussion. So, you know, we're looking at five years. I have zero worries about the safety. So I definitely want to talk to you about that today. And if anything, I just wish I had been taking it when I was racing full time. But uh, what do they say? When, when you know better, you do better, right? So, so here I am. And what I want to do today is, as always, I like to start with the basics. And that's so, you know, if anyone is listening and is really well versed in creatine physiology 101, you know, of course you can you can skip ahead if you want, but I really want to make sure that all the listeners understand, you know, what is creatine and what it isn't and how how do we make it in our bodies and how do we excrete it. So I'm hoping you could start us off by giving us a little creatine physiology 101, what is it, what energy systems is it used in, and what it isn't, a steroid, for example. 
Yeah, absolutely. So creatine's definitely not a steroid. Um, it's actually derived of three different amino acids. That's arginine, glycine, and methionine. Um, so amino acids are just the building blocks of protein. So anytime you consume like red meat or, or fish in your diet, you're consuming protein. And that contains different amino acids. And um, if you put those three amino acids together, you create creatine. And then creatine can be synthesized in your body, um, it, primarily in your liver and kidneys, but it could also be synthesized in your brain as well. So your body can make its own creatine. So every, every person has creatine within their bodies. And uh, of course, you can consume it from food sources as well, primarily red meat and seafood, but also chicken. And then um, you can also get creatine as a dietary supplement. So that's kind of what creatine is. But once you uh, consume it um, or create it within your body, um, it gets into the bloodstream. And about 95% of creatine is actually taken up into the muscle. So that's where most of the research has focused on. And I think it's because that's where most of the creatine is stored. And once it's in the muscle, um, about two thirds of it gets converted into phosphocreatine. And phosphocreatine, you can break down that molecule um, with an enzyme called creatine kinase, and it creates ATP. And so this is one of the energy systems. So as you mentioned, if you would have studied exercise physiology or biology, um, you would know that there's, there's essentially three different energy systems. And this phosphocreatine energy system is the fastest one. So that means that it's important for um, replacing ATP or energy within the, within the muscle, especially for high intensity based activities. So if you're doing anything that requires a large amount of effort quickly, like, I don't know, sprinting upstairs or lifting weights, um, this is the energy system that you're going to be predominantly using um, to support kind of that, uh, those types of muscular contractions. So that's uh, telling you kind of where creatine is mostly stored and kind of how it functions primarily. But uh, it also does a whole bunch of other things that's uh, pretty complicated, um, but it stimulates uh, different growth factors like IGF-1. Um, it also influences uh, satellite cells, which can um, increase the capacity for the muscle to grow. And uh, yeah, it does a, does a variety of other things within the muscle beyond just increasing the amount of phosphocreatine within the muscle. Because I think that's important for people to understand, but kind of that main mechanism of how it works is, yeah, just providing more energy. Yeah, no, that's great. Actually, let's since you brought it up with the satellite cells, why don't we keep going? And I'm wondering if you can speak to I was going to ask this later, but I'm going to ask it now because it seems like it fits well. So a lot of times people will talk about, oh my gosh, if I take creatine, like I get so bloated or I get dehydrated. So I'm kind of going to ask you a two-part question here. How does bringing water into the muscle actually benefit what you were just talking about, about the satellite cells and the IGF? And then after that, can you debunk this uh, myth about creatine causing dehydration? Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's a great question. So yeah, so uh, as you bring creatine into the muscle, 
it also draws water into the muscle as well. So similar to um, if you bring uh, carbohydrates into the muscle, mm-hmm. that also brings water in with it as well. And that will cause some cell swelling. So um, some great researchers like uh, Dr. Brian Roy um, has looked at the impacts of cell swelling. And that's actually a, a stimulus for muscle growth. But there's also a great paper by uh, Mark Tarnopolsky. He's a researcher at McMaster University. And they found that creatine loading um, increased cell swelling. And that had a cascade of events within the muscle. So it increased these things called myogenic regulatory factors that activated these satellite cells. And so satellite cells, um, they sit on the cell membrane. And when they get activated, um, they eventually turn into myonuclei. So a muscle cell is myonucleated. And if you want the muscle to grow, you need to increase the number of nuclei within the muscle first. And so this is uh, kind of one of the mechanisms where creatine actually can, through water retention, bringing water into the muscle, actually causes some cell swelling, increases those myogenic regulatory factors, increase satellite cells, increase myonuclei, and increases the capacity for the muscle to grow. So there is some pretty cool research to show kind of that cascade of events and um, that mechanism of of how creatine actually works. So Mm -hmm. it does the opposite of what people might say on the internet, where they say it causes like muscle cramps and associated with that could be dehydration. Um, It's actually doing the complete opposite. It's, It's actually hydrating the muscle cells. And there's actually been some studies to show that exercising in a hot environment um, could be improved with creatine supplementation, perhaps associated with enhanced water within within the cell. Yeah, I think that's all super interesting. So I mean, that's great what you're explaining. So someone's like, oh, okay, well, I get loaded. And maybe we'll come back to um, the loading phase and whether that loading is generally only attributed when you load, but I mean, it's important that you're, you're causing this, you know, I guess, swelling of the the muscle to lead to all of these um, different attributes of the muscle itself changing. Um, Actually, we might as well just speak about it. So if you load and we're, we haven't even talked about dosing, so I'm kind of going all over the place, but that's okay. We'll get there. If you load versus if you were to just do, um, you know, a maintenance phase and we'll get to the particulars after, do you have, you know, since you just said that that particular study was looked at loading, you still have the water coming into the muscle um, with the maintenance phase, but is the effect the same or it just is over a longer duration of time? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, So there was uh, some great research done by uh, Paul Greenhalgh um, and uh, Eric Haltman in the early 1990s. What they actually did was they looked at um, taking three grams a day of creatine for Mm -hmm. 28 days, compared that to somebody who took 20 grams a day for five to seven days, like a loading phase, and then dropped to a maintenance dose. And their maintenance dose was actually two grams a day. Mm -hmm. And what they found was at the end of the 28 days, even if you use that lower dose of just three grams a day, and you did not perform the loading phase, um, you still got to the same um, same amount of creatine within the muscle. So you had about a 20% increase 
overall the participants in that study um, when you supplement it with creatine, regardless if you just took a low dose of creatine, just three grams a day for 28 days, or if you perform that, uh, that loading phase where you took like 20 grams a day um, for five to seven days. So that's okay. some, some evidence that uh, you don't have to load. You can mm -hmm. just take a lower amount of creatine and you will still fill or saturate your muscles with creatine over time. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point because, you know, unless there's an athlete that, you know, suddenly realizes they want to drag creatine and they have 10 days to do something. I mean, not that I would ever recommend uh, doing this before a big event, but, you know, unless there's a real, really good reason why you have to load. And if you're worried about the potential bloating from loading, then, you know, what you're just saying is, is important. And, you know, you don't have to load if you have the time to just wait that three weeks to saturate your muscles. You said something um, a minute or two back about, you know, essentially by taking creatine, you're kind of hyperhydrating your muscles. Now, I've also read and learned that it can increase your ability to store glycogen. How do those two things work together? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. So if you take creatine and carbohydrates together, you can actually enhance glycogen resynthesis. So glycogen is another stored um, energy source within the muscle, and it can be used for high intensity type activities. Um, but it, it, that energy system is a little bit longer than the phosphocreatine energy system. Um, so we know that uh, eating pasta, for example, before doing any sort of endurance activity is important to enhance that activity. Um, so if you can take creatine with the carbohydrates, you could actually bring more glycogen into the muscle. And that could be a benefit for endurance athletes. So that's, yeah. uh, yeah, that's a great point. And there's actually, there's, I'm going to mention a really cool study that was done by the Australia Institute of Sport. Yes, this um, is a cool study. I know the one. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually done in, uh, in elite cyclists mm -hmm. and they did 120 kilometer time trials. And every 10 kilometers, um, they alternated between either a one kilometer sprint or a four kilometer sprint. And so they did that all the way for 120 kilometers. And what they found was if they took creatine and carbohydrates together, um, their sprint performance at the end of that 120 kilometer time trial was slightly better um, than if they just took carbohydrates alone. So to me, that's some pretty cool evidence to show that creatine can be important for endurance athletes. But I think one important thing to mention is that cyclists, uh, for cyclists, body weight is not as important. Um, whereas for runners, it becomes more important just because it's a weight-bearing activity. And there's actually some evidence um, to show that creatine perhaps could be detrimental to running performance um, because of that additional increase in water retention and body mass with creatine supplementation. Yeah, that's interesting, because from what I recall from that study out of Australia, they actually wanted to look at the increase in body mass. So at the end of the, I think, I don't know if it's at the end of the 120k, they did like an incline, eight kilometer time trial or something, I might have the details off, but they wanted to look at the impact of the mass. And what they noticed that even though the athletes gained weight in muscle mass, the increased power that they gained from the creatine actually negated the weight. 
And so I think that was something that they were also interested to look at for that reason that, you know, cyclists are very concerned about uh, body composition or power to weight for climbing as well. Um, so essentially, you know, it seemed to be like it, it could even out from the gains that you get, but then you're also getting the gain of what you mentioned, um, the more powerful sprint at the end. So if you're not losing out because of the increased body mass, but you can improve your sprint at the end, that still seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was another important part of that uh, study that I failed to mention is that no, um, I just remember did, that one for some reason. They did that hill climb as well. And yeah, they found that there was no detrimental effect of, of that additional weight um, in, in cyclists. But there was a study in runners where it was um, actually detrimental, that increase mm. in body mass. So maybe cycling versus running, potentially there's yeah differences um, with regards to weight gain there. And in the study with the runners, was the weight water weight or had they gained lean body mass? It was just over a, uh, a seven day loading phase. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was a short term study. So presumably most of the weight that was gained was, um, was water, was water weight. Right. Now, if those athletes had continued to take creatine for three months at a maintenance phase, would they have gone back to, um, I guess, more typical weight? Yeah, that's another uh, great question as well. And I'm not too sure, to be honest. Um, there was a study that was recently done by Brad Schoenfeld. Mm -hmm. He's a, a guru in kind of bodybuilding and resistance mm -hmm. training. And they actually looked at uh, intracellular and extracellular cellular water um, and total body water with uh, creatine supplementation following a training, a resistance training program. And they found that I believe it was eight week training study. So at the end of the eight weeks, there was actually no difference between the two groups, the creatine or the placebo group with regards to um, all the water within their body. So um, that kind of shows that maybe over time, your body does a good job at kind of regulating how much water is in your body and maybe it has a lessened effect over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That would be an important thing. I think for, for what you're saying, like for runners or, or for cyclists or anyone else that needs to, to weigh in, for example, um, to maybe not load like right before your event, if, if that pound or two could make a difference to you. Super yeah. interesting. Um, I want to talk about maybe backstepping a bit, but I want to talk about the actual supplement of creatine because I know that, you know, marketing is a, is a wonderful thing sometimes, but it can also just be a money grab. And the beauty about taking creatine monohydrate is that it's actually pretty cheap. But if you go to Amazon or whatever GNC, you'll see all these different types of creatine and there's the HCL and there's the one that claims is going to be better absorption. So can we just set the record straight on the best type of creatine supplement to take and why people should not waste their money? Yeah, so creatine monohydrate is the king of supplements, um, king of creatine supplements. Um, so all the other alternative forms of creatine, they just cost more money. So that's one reason that you might not want to consume those other alternative forms. Um, but those other alternative forms have never been shown to be superior from a performance perspective than creatine monohydrate. And creatine monohydrate is the most studied. And there's tons of safety data on creatine monohydrate. 
So we know it's the safest. We know it's the most effective. Um, and uh, it's also the cheapest as well. So I think for those three reasons, um, people should stick with creatine monohydrate. Right. That's great. And I want to go over dosing for a second before we keep talking about safety. So we give it a bit more uh, context. So you've mentioned um, loading, you've mentioned maintenance, and I've noticed in the research that the dosing is relative to people's body weight. So could you just cover those three? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to get as uh, as much creatine into your body as, as possible quickly, then you need to do that loading phase. So typically that's 20 grams a day for five to seven days. And you separate that 20 grams into uh, four equal doses throughout the day. So you'll take like five in the morning, five grams at lunch, five grams at uh, dinner time, and maybe five grams before you go to sleep. Um, so that's one way to basically saturate or load your muscles with creatine. Um, or you can do a lower dose of just three grams a day. And uh, after 28 days, you'll have a 20% increase in creatine within your muscles. Um, or a strategy that uh, myself and uh, one of my good uh, friends and collaborators, Dr. Darren Kando does, is uh, we use 0.1 grams of creatine uh, per kilogram of body weight per day. So if you weigh 70 kilograms, then you would take 70, multiply that by 0.1. So that'd be about seven grams of creatine per day. So we do a relative dosing strategy. And our rationale for that is that a bigger athlete, um, a bigger individual will typically have more muscle mass and they might go through a little bit more creatine than somebody who's a little bit smaller. So we've used that relative dosing strategy, and it's been um, one, of the, one of the doses that's very effective to enhance muscle performance. Um, but uh, it also is an effective dose to enhance some of the bone adaptations with creatine as well. Right. So when it comes to dosing for muscle, that's different than what you're seeing so far for bone and for the brain. We might as well keep going on this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, there has not been any really good dose response studies done on either the, the brain or um, on bone. Mm -hmm. But uh, we wrote a, a recent kind of uh, narrative or editorial where we looked at all the studies that showed some benefits of creatine supplementation when you combine it with resistance training on bone adaptations. And if you look at those studies, they use a higher dose of creatine. So they use uh, either that relative dosing strategy of 0.1 grams per kilogram per day, or they use greater than um, six grams of creatine per day, all the way up to about 10 grams of creatine per day to get those bone benefits. So mm -hmm. based off that, um, it appears like you need a slightly higher dose of creatine to get at least the bone benefits. Mm -hmm. And then the brain? The brain, I'm not too sure, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. So again, there hasn't been a good dose response study done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, uh, it's actually quite difficult to get creatine across the blood-brain bar barrier. It, mm -hmm. is, it is possible. Um, there are some creatine transporters at the blood-brain barrier, but uh, they're much fewer than what's at the muscle level. So it might require a, 
a higher dose of creatine to kind of force creatine across that blood brain barrier into the brain. Um, but, uh, when you look at the individual studies, there are studies that have used a very low dose of creatine that have shown improvements in cognitive function. And then there are studies that have used a really high dose of creatine, like 20 grams a day, um, and have shown essentially no effect on, on cognition or some of the brain outcomes that they're looking at. So mm -hmm. I'm not a hundred, it's not as consistent, the data at the brain level, um, with regards to a good dose response, but um, yeah, that study or that research definitely needs to be run to look at, you know, how much creatine do we actually need um, to actually get that uh, benefit at the brain level. Yeah, no, super interesting. Anyone listening, I did a whole episode on creatine in the brain with Dr. Brian Roy uh, that we just mentioned earlier. Now, I want to, we're, we're kind of talking about dosing, and I wanted to keep going on that because of the safety so you just mentioned, you know, loading 20 grams a day maintenance, you know, whether you're doing the relative to your weight or three to five grams a day. So I'm wondering if we can keep on this topic and if you could speak to what you've seen in the research as far as the highest and longest dosing regimens for creatine and the safety outcomes associated with those studies. Okay. I have seen up to five years of creatine supplementation. Mm -hmm. Um, in a body, it was a case study in a bodybuilder and, uh, he had perfectly fine kidney function and all of his blood markers. Um, so that's basically the longest, longest data set that, uh, I'm aware of mm -hmm. with regards to the highest dosing. There was actually, there was actually one study in, uh, this was a case study, um, with an individual that actually developed, uh, kidney dysfunction. And okay. they looked at, they asked him how much creatine he was taking. And he was taking over 200 grams of creatine per day. Okay. So this was a self-report, a case study. Um, he was also taking about 20 other supplements as well. Oh. So uh, <laughs> there's, there's obviously some uh, difficulty in interpreting that, that data. But uh, yeah, this was, um, at least in one individual that was taking a huge amount of creatine over 200 grams of creatine per day, mm -hmm. which is definitely not required. Yeah. Um, actually developed uh, kidney problems because of that. But typically speaking, it's safe to take creatine in the recommended dose for your kidneys. Yeah, absolutely. So if you take creatine, um, either kind of the, the typical dosing strategy is, a, is around five grams a day. If you do the relative dosing strategy, it might get closer to seven, eight, or up to 10 grams a day. Or if you do that loading phase, 20 grams a day, um, we know that that is perfectly safe to do so. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge amount of data to show that that dose does no harm uh, to your kidneys or your liver. And what about if you're pregnant? Um, so that data is definitely emerging as well. Um, there's a, a researcher, her name is Stacy Ellery, mm -hmm. and she has done quite a bit of uh, research in, in animal models, um, showing some benefits of, of creatine supplementation during pregnancy. And I believe they're running uh, human studies now to kind of show some of those 
some of those benefits. So in theory, um, it could be a benefit to take creatine during pregnancy, but I believe we need more data in that particular population. Mm -hmm. I'm picturing like a muscular baby. (laughs) Obviously, it would not be working out, however. Okay, well, that's always important to know. And I think a question that comes up a lot when when it comes to supplementation, of course, is a lot of athletes are you know, still training while they're pregnant. So if they're taking creatine, just curious, do they need to stop or can they keep going? Um, It it appears like it's perfectly safe and it it could actually be uh, an advantage to take creatine um, during pregnancy. So I think one of the benefits of of taking creatine during pregnancy is that you actually get more uh, creatine into the baby and uh, it can protect the brain if it's cut off from oxygen during like the delivery. Interesting. And uh, they've shown, yeah, some benefits in those particular situations, at least in animal models. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. Wow. Because I'm sure that happens often enough. I don't know how often, but yeah, that's important. Um, You had mentioned earlier, you know, we talked about that you make creatine in your own body. And then the main sources, if you consume fish and steak, and I think herring is like a great source of creatine, which I remember one of my teammates used to travel with those jars of uh, herring that you can just buy. <laughs> and she was a really good athlete. So you always wonder, did that herring help her out? But it was kind of disgusting. Um, so you have you have these foods that are high in creatine, but if you're vegetarian or vegan, um, can you speak to, you know, what would the difference in your baseline creatine be because of your diet if you're not supplementing? Yeah. So if you're not uh, supplementing with creatine and if you're a vegetarian, you're going to have a lower amount of creatine within your muscle. And from a muscle performance perspective, um, vegetarians or vegans appear to be more responsive to creatine supplementation just because they have a lower baseline level. And uh, so that's uh, perhaps it's even more important for vegan or vegetarian athletes to to uh, consider creatine. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually heard you speaking on a podcast. I can't remember which one it was. And you said something super interesting. So I'd love, I'd love to hear what you learned, but that it's possible that food manufacturers might start adding creatine to foods. Yeah, exactly. So there was a, this year there was a, a creatine conference um, so it was just That's three awesome. days of, of creatine presentations. You must have been in heaven. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was probably one of the best days of my life, actually. That's or awesome. a couple of days, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was super cool, super interesting. And you can you really find out kind of all the benefits of creatine, not just for muscle performance, but it can affect a variety of different tissues in the body. But yeah, one of the individuals there spoke about uh, um, that they're now uh, infusing uh, creatine into uh, plant-based burgers. Mm. And so that's, uh, we know again that vegans or vegetarians or those that consume a higher plant-based diet uh, might have lower amounts of creatine within their muscles. And so they could perhaps see some of those benefits of, of creatine supplementation. And he talked about some of the data where they actually like cook um, the patties and there was a small amount in, in reduction of the creatine that was available, but it was like still 90% of the creatine that was um, put into these patties was still available to be 
um, digested and transported to the muscle. So this was some pretty cool research from, from my perspective, because um, a lot of people just don't like taking, you know, this white powder and mixing it with water and it doesn't really mix that well. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you can get it in, you know, like a, a food source like that, that could be uh, kind of really important for a lot of different individuals. Yeah, I always find this topic interesting when you start adding, like you see these yogurts with 30 grams of protein. And, you know, let's say you have these burgers with creatine. Like, where's the line as far as like third party testing now? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that third party testing our burgers. <laughs> so, um, I don't have a big uh, uh, knowledge base with regards to. Uh, um, kind of in the food industry, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I assume it's fairly well regulated. Um, but in the supplement industry, there's different uh, independent organizations that test products. Mm -hmm. um, so you might look for like a stamp that's by Trusted in Sport or Informed Sport or NSF certified supplements. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just means that there's an independent party that's essentially testing the supplement to ensure that what the supplement says it is it actually is. Um, but I assume if it's going into food, that's got to be a lot more regulated than supplements are, but I could be wrong with that. Yeah. It's always an interesting question, but definitely great point about, you know, if you're taking a supplement, it is so important because we know that, gosh, I think it's 20% of supplements are, are contaminated for, and that's, you know, if you're a competing athlete, but we know how that can go wrong, unfortunately. I'm curious, I don't know that you know the answer, but are they going to be transparent about this? Like, are you going to buy your, let's say, Beyond Burger? Not that they're doing it, but um, that's just a burger people might recognize. And is it going to say on it with creatine added? I, I hope so. Um, but I have this feeling that it's it might not say <laughs> that as explicitly as you would, you would assume. Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like there's a lot of myths or misconceptions associated with creatine. Right. And so, yeah, anytime somebody sees creatine, they're, they're like, uh, a lot of people have this like fear that it's a steroid and things like that. So podcasts like this are, are super important to inform individuals of, you know, what creatine actually is and how safe it is and some of the uh, benefits of creatine. But yeah, I'd, I would be interested um, to see how um, clear the marketing is on these uh, patties just because of... Um, those misconceptions. Me too. I'm just imagining like someone looking at it thinking, oh God, I don't want to get all muscular eating that burger just because of the misconceptions about creatine and just passing it along. But yeah, I can't imagine it would be stamped right on it either. Anyhow, yeah. it's super interesting. And it's great though, you know, if, if someone did really understand why it's important, I think it's a great move from a vegetarian perspective or vegan. Um, what else did I want to ask you about? There's so many things. I've also heard that um, or read about the fact that the type of, you know, whatever fiber type you have in your muscles more predominantly can impact. Um, so we're talking about responsiveness with vegetarians, which is why this came to mind. But that can be another thing that could impact your response to creatine. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That research was actually done um, at the University of Alberta. Um, by Dr. Gordon Bell and Dr. Dan Sirtak. Dr. Gordon Bell was actually my my PhD supervisor. So oh, okay. I was uh, pretty pumped when I saw that research. 
Um, but uh, he looked at creatine supplementation and responsiveness to creatine supplementation. And yeah, he essentially found two main factors that determined how somebody would would respond to creatine supplementation. One was their baseline levels of creatine. So if you had lower amounts of creatine within your muscle, you tended to be more responsive. And that explains why vegetarians or vegans tend to be more responsive to creatine supplementation. Um, but the second factor was if you had more type 2 muscle fibers, you tended to be more responsive to creatine supplementation. And again, I think this, it kind of makes sense because that's uh, those types of fibers are more anaerobic. And so perhaps you can just store more creatine, which is an anaerobic energy source within um, those muscle fibers. And perhaps you can get kind of greater benefits. And mm -hmm. then it comes back to... Uh, um, you know, like endurance athletes, for example, um, perhaps they'd have more type one muscle fibers, not always the case, but, mm -hmm. um, traditionally they would. So maybe they'll be less responsive to creatine supplementation, but, uh, yeah, his study was the only one that I'm aware of that's tried to, um, at least describe some of the differences between responders and non-responders of creatine supplementation. Yeah, that's super interesting. I feel like it's a little unfair to the uh, <laughs> the endurance athletes. You know, I would love to be able to put on more muscle, but I don't really have the genetics for, for bulking up. And here I am now probably at more of a disadvantage <laughs> because of my muscle type. I guess I can try and train to get more type 2 muscle fibers, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I want to mention, actually, there was another really cool study that was done at the University of Alberta with Ted Putman. And he had rats um, and they performed what they called uh, low frequency chronic uh, stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially what they did was if you, uh, if you want to activate a muscle, you need, you send an electrical, an electrical impulse from your brain to that muscle and it causes a muscle contraction. Um, but what they used was just little um, zaps of electrical activity on these rats and they would do it for 12 hours a day. So essentially, it was like extreme endurance training in these rats because they were just um, kind of light muscle contraction over and over and over again for 12 hours throughout a day. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, kind of an extreme model. But uh, when they when they would do that, they would show great improvements in um, like mitochondria or um, oxidative uh, enzymes and the aerobic system. And they would tend to show a shift from type two muscle fibers to uh, towards more slow twitch muscle fibers. Um, but what they actually found was if the rats took creatine, it actually didn't impair their ability to build mitochondria or improve their ability to use that uh, oxidative energy system. But what it did was is it actually preserved um, help preserve their fast twitch muscle fibers. Oh, so I always thought that um, a really cool study to do and kind of extrapolate this to humans was um, if you're an endurance athlete doing like a really high volume training or maybe a training camp or something like that, it might be important to take creatine during that time because um, it can preserve your fast twitch fibers and your explosive muscular power. And you're still going to get all those benefits of um, that high volume endurance training. That's such a great point. Yeah, that would be a really good study. I know someone um, 
on the World Cup series who just did like some ultra endurance races and then went back to do World Cup mountain bike race and was kind of saying like, oh, wow, like I've lost, you know, lost that that snappiness, that pop. Now, of course, it's not going to do everything, but that's really interesting what you're saying, right? For people who decide to kind of mix it up uh, to those extremes with the really high end shorter racing and then the ultra 200 mile race. Oh, that's fascinating. I definitely won't stop taking creatine. <laughs> Preserve all the type twos I can. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, <clears throat> I guess what we haven't talked about is, you know, we, we spoke about carbohydrates stored in the muscles, glycogen. And for anyone listening, you know, if you have glycogen, good glycogen stores, and then you go do a really hard 90 minute workout, you can deplete all of the glycogen stores that your muscle can use. What about um, with creatine? How long does it take? You know, I get the sense there's not an exact answer, but what do we know about how long it would take to deplete the supplements in your body um, back to your baseline? That's yeah, that's a really great question. Um, if you stop taking creatine, like if you stop supplementing with creatine, it usually takes about four to six weeks for your creatine levels within your muscle to return back to baseline. Um, if you're trying to just increase uh, like that energy system, um, usually it can increase the amount of phosphocreatine by about 20%. So that energy system typically can only last about 10 seconds mm -hmm. um, before you essentially deplete that energy system. So it's really only useful for really high intensity type activities and for a very short duration of time. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you could have a 20% increase, maybe you can last, you know, 12 seconds instead of 10 seconds. And then you can get some of those benefits because you can train a little bit harder. Oh, yeah. And just imagine how that could um, turn out on a track, you know, for 200 meter sprint or something, right? Like that, that could be the difference between winning and not winning. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it, it depends on what you're doing, but even as the example you gave about the sprints uh, during the hundred kilometer time trial, I mean, that's, yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of endurance athletes kind of think, Oh, I'm not going to take creatine. Like that's not for me, but you know, what we haven't talked about also is <clears throat> we know that cyclists, you know, often have poor bone health. Now there's, there are many factors that contribute to that. It's non weight bearing, you know, maybe there's an energy availability concerns there. But let's talk about the potential for creatine to maintain or improve bone health. Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually there's kind of two mechanisms. One is an indirect mechanism. Um, and that is, we know that creatine combined with resistance training, you can put on bigger and stronger muscles. And those muscles are attached to tendons that are attached to bone. And so if you stress those muscles, that's going to stress the bone. And in theory, over time, the bones will adapt to that stress and they can actually get bigger and stronger. Um, the other mechanism is um, there's been some cell culture studies where they had osteoblasts and those are the bone forming cells. And what they did was they sprinkled some magical white powder, creatine monohydrate on those osteoblasts, and it increased the activity of those osteoblasts. And so there's both a direct mechanism of how creatine can work, and then that indirect mechanism 
through just increasing muscle mass. And so some great research from uh, Phil Chilibeck and Darren Kandow has shown that if you take creatine combined with exercise, um, that you can actually improve bone mineral density um, and uh, improve bone strength. And they've done up to a 12-month study, um, but they actually are just completing a a two-year training study. And they've shown uh, similar benefits of creatine supplementation in an older population. Um, And I believe there was over 260 people in that two-year training study. So this is a massive effort um, to to complete that. So hopefully they get it, uh, uh, they write that manuscript up sooner rather than later, um, because I think those results are are really meaningful. Yeah. And, and for anyone listening, you know, when you're doing a study on bone, like it takes time to, to see changes in bone mineral density. So these things have to take a year or two um, to actually see those changes. I do recall reading about a study that looked at, I'm wondering if you know the study, um, probably a postmenopausal woman and how they preserved their bone mass at the hip. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. So that was one of uh, Phil Chilibeck's um, okay. studies. It was yeah, published in 2015 in the uh, Medicine, Science and Sport and Exercise, which is like a really high caliber journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they found that 12 months of creatine supplementation combined with resistance training um, prevented um, that attenuation of of, uh, of femoral uh, bone mineral density. So that's uh, like at your hip, um, which could be important in that population. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's super important. You know, it's and I think what you keep saying is also important. It's kind of similar with protein, um, the training piece of this puzzle. So, you know, especially when it comes to the muscle and the bone, it's one thing to take creatine, but if we want the muscular and bone benefits, most of it is going to come because you're also training, right? So it's kind of like people eating extra protein. Sure, there are some benefits, but really when it comes to building the muscle, like you need to train. So for anyone listening, don't forget the training piece of that. Yeah. I mean, that's super interesting about the osteoblasts. Um, I can't wait to see more research on that. That's interesting. I didn't, I hadn't read about that. Yeah. That was, so have they looked at metabolism of bone in humans or only looking at cell cultures? Like as far as the osteoblasts, have they kind of tracked while taking creatine? Is there, you know, a change in osteoblasts in the blood? I'm unaware of any human uh, research that has looked at that. So that's probably something that, that somebody has to do. So that's, yeah, that's definitely a great, great comment. It's like I'll have to um, go back to school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got to get to work and start collecting more data. I got to go. But yeah, the, exor- the exercise piece is, is really important. And, and we actually recently uh, published a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at uh, the changes in lean body mass with, so muscle mass with creatine supplementation. And we found all the studies ever published in the literature that have um, used creatine and looked at that particular outcome. And uh, we also did sub-analysis as well. And if you just took creatine without performing exercise, um, you had no increase in lean body mass. So you have to combine creatine with exercise. And then same thing with the the bone as well. Um, There was actually a two-year creatine supplementation study it was done by um, some individuals in Brazil, 
and they found no benefit of cre- taking creatine for two years on any of their uh, bone measures. Um, so it's really important that you combine creatine with exercise to, uh, to get those benefits. I tell you, exercise is just the magic pill, isn't it? It's like one of these days, everyone's going to listen, I hope. Oh, that's amazing. What I think is interesting is how, you know, with age, when it comes to protein, we have uh, anabolic resistance. So let's say for anyone listening that an example of that would be if I'm 20 years old, and I take 20 grams of protein, you know, that can do X for me and my muscles when I'm training. But if I'm 70 years old, I'd need 40 grams of protein to get that same effect. What do we know about, you know, is there anything happening with aging around creatine? So if I'm 20 versus 70, am I going to get the same effect from the same dose? That's a, that's a great question. So we actually did a, another systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the effects of creatine on memory. Oh, we okay. actually found uh, greater benefits in, uh, in those that were older um, compared to those that were younger. So there might actually be, from a brain perspective, there might be an advantage um, for older adults to consider creatine supplementation. Um, and then from the uh, from the muscle perspective, um, I believe that it's similar effects actually for both older and younger individuals. So we know that creatine could be a benefit um, for older adults as well. And again, Darren Kando and Phil Chelebeck have kind of led the way in looking at uh, quite a few uh, studies, individual studies, but also systematic reviews. And they clearly show that um, creatine combined with exercise again, um, can be a benefit to enhance muscle mass, um, but also enhance upper and lower body strength and also enhance um, function as well, which I think is really, really important as individuals age. Oh, for sure. Oh, so that's interesting. That's great then. So same dosing protocols used with younger and older people. Yeah, I, I, I would use the same dosing protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that those dosing protocols are effective in both younger and older individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one, no one again has done like a really good dose response study um, looking at those two different populations to see if they're maybe you need a slightly higher dose of creatine um, in uh, older individuals, or maybe you need a lower dose. I'm not too sure. Um, right. But uh, yeah, that would be something interesting to look at. It's great about the memory though. Now I'm trying to wrap my head around if I'm just not thinking about this properly. So if you have 20 year olds, they probably have good memories to start with. And then if you have, let's say 80 year olds, like maybe their memory is not as great to start with. So I'm assuming that's all done relative to their first memory test. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, maybe uh, I'm not hundred percent percent sure why there was that difference but uh we found that difference and yeah it was one thing that definitely was really interesting to me was that um it could be of greater importance for for older adults and yeah maybe it is associated with their their baseline cognitive levels because we know as you age that's what happens your cognition processing speed executive function tend to go down um and uh yeah so maybe there could be of greater benefits for older adults compared to younger. That's a and huge that's selling feature for creatine yeah. right there. That's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and then I wonder, 
<laughs> I'm not painting 20 year olds with one brush, but you know, if you're partying a lot and let's say um, drinking more or, you know, let's say they're taking smoking weed or whatnot. Like I'm curious what kind of history was taken there because we know that all of those things can impact your memory as a 20 year old too. Yeah, totally. So yeah, uh, yeah there's uh, lots of, <laughs> Human research is often quite difficult to do because humans are somewhat uh, unreliable and just it's hard to control things. But uh, yeah, that's what the data would suggest right now is that older adults tend to be more responsive to creatine supplementation for enhanced memory compared to younger individuals. But yeah, maybe there could be other factors that explain that. But regardless, I mean, to me, I, I hope that before 10 years from now, but I just imagine in a decade that creatine is a supplement that a lot of older people are taking um, because hopefully the science is getting out there uh, to the masses outside of just the scientific community to to recognize the potential cognitive benefits and, and bone benefits, all things that we struggle more with as we age. Um, this might hurt the coffee lovers a bit, but I, from what I understand, I don't think it's that significant, but can you speak to the relationship between coffee and creatine and whether there's any blunting effect of caffeine on creatine? Yeah, that's um, a, a research question that we, we tried to answer. Um, well, basically at the start of COVID, we we're running the research study and then um, it got shut down. And so mm -hmm. we had a relatively small sample size. But there's some short-term studies where they combine creatine and caffeine at the same time. And they show that it might actually be detrimental to take um, both those supplements at the same time, which is, again, that's kind of a big shock for a lot of people because they take those pre-workout supplements that contain creatine, caffeine, and 20 other ingredients. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, what we actually found was that if you took uh, creatine, you got improvements um, in muscle thickness. So your muscles got bigger. And in particular, uh, one of the sites that we measure was knee extensor muscle thickness. And so that was kind of to be expected, but if you took creatine and caffeine, it, uh, lessened the impact of training on your knee extensor muscle thickness. So we do have some training data to show that perhaps combining creatine and caffeine at the same time, might uh, have that blunted effect. But we also measured muscle thickness, I believe at six different sites. And we measured a whole bunch of other things as well. And we found no difference between mm -hmm. taking creatine alone or taking creatine and caffeine. It was just that one outcome variable where we actually yeah. found that attenuated effect. And as I mentioned, we, we were cut short on that study. So we had a relatively small sample size. Um, we still felt like the data was important to publish, but mm -hmm. uh, we definitely need to replicate that study with a larger sample size to confirm our findings. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's important for people who love their coffee <laughs> to know it's just causing a problem for my muscles. No, but that's uh, <clears throat> my research got cut short during COVID, too. So I feel for you. Um, but hopefully, yeah, that'll get replicated so we can see more about that. Um, I'm curious, you know, there are so many benefits of creatine. Has this seeped much into like medical practitioners and 
if not, do you think that's something that will happen? Because if you're a physician, and I'm not talking about a sports medicine practitioner, I mean a GP. If you're a physician and you know, you're seeing a lot of older people who are dealing with frailty um, and memory and cognition problems and even needing to build more muscle because of frailty, like to me, it almost seems like this should be, you know, creatine should be recommended to patients. But is that something that you think is even happening at all? I'm not too sure. Um, I know, for example, uh, Mark Tarnopolsky, who's that McMaster researcher, but he's also a medical doctor as well. Okay. And he works with uh, um, a variety of uh, conditions associated with mitochondrial dysfunction and, uh, and muscular dystrophy. Um, and I know that he's implemented creatine into his uh, clinical practice because mm -hmm. of some of the research that he's done, but also others to show some of those benefits. Um, so I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if other physicians are utilizing creatine. I think there's still a lot of, uh, myths or misconceptions with regards to creatine. And one of those is, uh, associated with that, uh, kidney dysfunction. And the reason why that kind of myth persists is because, um, creatine is non-enzymatically degraded into creatinine. And creatinine is a common measure of kidney dysfunction. But mm. the problem is, um, if they're taking a creatine supplement, creatinine will increase just because of that normal uh, metabolism of, of creatine or that normal breakdown of creatine. Right. Um, but that doesn't indicate that there's actually kidney dysfunction occurring. Um, but these doctors are looking at that increase in creatinine and interpreting that as kidney dysfunction. And so there's, there's a, yeah. So I think there's still that fear associated with that. And yeah, the way that I kind of explain it um, is if you look at resting heart rate, for example, if you look at uh, a trained individual or an untrained individual, the trained individual will have a lower resting heart rate. Mm -hmm. So you're using heart rate as an indicator of kind of health or training status. But it's like if somebody, if that trained person just did exercise, like just got off the bike, walked into the doctor's office and their heart rate is elevated. Right. And you looked at their heart rate response and you're like, yep, they're untrained, they're unhealthy and <laughs> this is super bad, you know, but they didn't take into account that they just did exercise. They're yeah. inappropriately interpreting the, the heart rate response. Mm -hmm. Um, so same thing with, uh, with creatine, if they're taking a creatine supplement, creatinines will be elevated and they're interpreting that as kidney dysfunction. But if you actually measured kidney, kidney dysfunction, it's, it's not occurring. Um, that it's just that, that interpretation problem. That's super interesting. Yeah. That was a really good analogy as well. Huh? I, I just, I'm surprised that these conversations haven't been had. Yeah. I find that interesting. However, you know, yesterday I went, I went on to the Mayo Clinic website and still, as of yesterday, it says that creatine puts you at risk of dehydration and also there are no studies investigating, I'm reading it, the long-term benefits and risks of creatine supplementation. That's the Mayo Clinic. That blows my mind. We got to change that. Well, you're the one that has the power to change that. But yeah, <laughs> so I'm just uh, blown away by that because that 
is a very reputable website. And I'm sure a lot of physicians, you know, contribute to and uh, maybe refer um, patients there. So yeah, I think that's kind of what made me think about this question in the first place. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting that that's on that website that just seems, are they not reading the research? Yeah, so maybe maybe you can have some impact there. <laughs> um, well, this has been, I mean, I have a thousand more questions, but of course I have to respect your time. I think we've covered a lot. Um, I really wanted us to touch on safety and, you know, the right supplement type, some of the other clinical applications beyond just uh, muscle. So bone and the brain. Is there anything that we didn't really touch on that you'd like to mention before I ask you my last question? No, I don't think so. I think that was, that's definitely the main things for sure that um, creatine is a very safe supplement to take. Um, you just need, you don't need to do that loading phase. You can just take a lower dose of creatine and yeah, it could be, uh, it can definitely impact your muscle performance, um, both or muscle function as you age. And, uh, it could also be a benefit if you combine creatine with exercise for bone and then, uh, yeah, you could also get those brain benefits as well. So there's a lot of emerging data with creatine supplementation. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, we don't have to spend more than a minute or two on this, but I feel like we should mention it. Is it better to take your creatine with carbohydrate and protein? Definitely, um, at least over the short term, mm -hmm. um, because uh, the creatine transporter at the muscle um, is insulin dependent. And so if you take either protein or carbohydrates, those will both stimulate insulin. And that will help with the uptake of, of creatine. And there's also been um, some training studies as well where they looked at um, either just protein alone or protein and creatine on resistance training adaptations. And they showed greater benefits if you combine creatine with protein um, to get bigger and stronger muscles. So that was some of the early work from uh, Dr. Darren Burke um, and uh, Dr. Phil Chilebeck as well at the University of Saskatchewan. Yeah, that's great. So if you're making a smoothie, you might as well just throw it in all together. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yo, this has been super, super insightful. And again, I just think it's such an important uh, supplement. It's such a safe supplement. Gosh, it must be worth 1000 studies on creatine. Um, there's some great meta analyses that I can uh, put in the show notes here for anyone who wants to read more. And um, thank you. But I have my last question that I ask every guest on my podcast that is not really anything to do with creatine, but a bit more about you, because I always find it interesting to learn more about my guests. And a lot of guests that I have on are, are scientists. And I know that science itself um, is very imperfect. And the name of my podcast is Imperfect Progress. And I named it that because I love science and it's imperfect. Life is imperfect. And, you know, we always have these thoughts that everything's going to go so smoothly, but I find the older I get, um, I just know that nothing's going to go smoothly at this point in my life. And I'm always interested to hear, you know, I know to get where you are today in your career, and I, I don't know about your life. So I'm just looking at your career, that of course, there, there had to be some adversity on the way. And then, um, you know, there's the rest of your life, which feel free to, to answer this in any way you'd like. How have you managed to, you know, move forward through times when 
you thought things were going to go a certain way and they just didn't. And the way I, the reason I really like to ask this is because, you know, and I think about, um, you know, I've seen so much of your research, so I know it's been a lot of hard work to get where you are. I think sometimes when we hear how somebody else moves through imperfect progress, like it can resonate with maybe that one person listening. And so maybe something that you say right now can help someone else who's going through, um, you know, a process that's not quite as uh, linear as they expected. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I would say that most of the research that I've published or um, conducted, it actually they, it completely fails. Like it shows that the supplement doesn't work. So my, my PhD work was actually on L-arginine supplementation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that essentially in, in healthy, young, um, athletic population, it has no effect on nitric oxide. It had no effect on enhancing any of the hormonal responses, which at the time we, we thought were associated with improving muscle mass. Um, so that was almost every study I ran during my PhD. I was like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This is like, but I think those are important um, parts of the, uh, the scientific world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not only showing that something is significant, but also showing non-significance is is also just as important. It's important for athletes to know, for example, that you don't need to supplement with L-arginine. And uh, so I think those failures are important to um, not even think of them as failures, I guess. It's just that's data is data and that's um, what it is. And um, but throughout my PhD, I was like really disappointed. Every study, like, no, come on, like, please find a significance. But um, I think those are important findings as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I've been very successful just because um, I've done what I've uh, like kind of passionate about. I really am interested in kind of exercise science and supplementation and uh, performance. And I've also uh, found good collaborators as well. So like working with Darren Kando has been, um, yeah, uh, I've been so fortunate to be able to uh, just work alongside such a a smart guy. And uh, I think that's been really important for my career as well. Mm -hmm. No, that's super useful. And you make such a great point that no matter what type of data we get, like there's always something to learn, right? (laughs) might not be what you expected, but that happens so much in science. And sometimes learning that something doesn't do anything is a great outcome. It just needs to get published more often. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate that answer. Thank you. And thank you so much for for taking the time. I mean, I I love, uh, love the topic and I think it's super interesting. And I just hope to you know, get the knowledge further than just the scientific community. So everyone can realize that creatine is is so much more than just going to the gym and putting on muscle. It has so much to do with health and longevity and, and the brain. And I think there's so much more to come. So we'll be paying attention to your research. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To learn more about creatine, including links to some of the research we discussed today, check out the show notes on my blog at anguzman.com. 
To learn more from Dr. Scott Forbes, follow him on Instagram at Scott underscore Forbes underscore PhD, also known there as Dr. Creatine. If you want to support the show, you can really help me out by heading to Apple or Spotify and giving me a star rating and commenting on the podcast. In addition, sharing it with friends and family is super helpful to me. While you're there, be sure to subscribe and then you'll be notified when new episodes are live. You can also support me by supporting the sponsors of the show. And right now that is Inside Tracker. So remember to get 20% off anything in their store. Go to insidetracker.com forward slash Guzman Nutrition. If you're interested in being a sponsor, just reach out to me at guzmannutrition at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're keen to learn deeper insights into podcast topics, you should subscribe to my newsletter at the bottom of any page on my website at anguzman.com. I write in more depth about all the topics there once a month. So thank you again for being a part of this community. We're all just out here trying to do our best to navigate life. So if things are going great, that's awesome. Go with the momentum. And if you're struggling, just remember to keep moving. Just put one foot in front of the other and just know that you are not alone. Stay tuned because next I have a former professional cyclist on my episode and that is going to be all about sports nutrition, talking about their experiences in the pro peloton before retirement and some tips on your mindset for when things are really going tough out there. So I will speak with you soon. Until next time, take care. Wind at your back. <laughs>